Welcome to episode 45 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by actual FBI cases. In this episode, we speak with retired agent Jeff Doyle, who served 20 years with the FBI. He joined the Bureau after eight and a half years in the military, and early on in his Bureau career, Jeff worked a variety of assignments in the Richmond and New York divisions, including SWAT, bank robberies, and investigating Italian organized crime. He was later assigned to a squad established to combat Chinese organized crime. He was eventually promoted to be the supervisor of that squad, which began to focus primarily on investigating the trafficking of heroin and cocaine from Southeast Asia into the United States. Jeff is interviewed about working as the case agent of Operation White Mare, the international FBI investigation that resulted still today in the largest heroin bust and seizure in U.S. history. The investigation identified and disrupted major international Chinese drug networks. Post-retirement, Jeff now owns and operates Doyle Carden Group, LLC, an investigative and anti-money laundering consulting firm. Before we get to that interview... I want to give a shout out to Brad. Brad is a new listener who emailed me to say that he is binge listening to the podcast as he works on building cars on the night shift at the GM plant in Ingersoll, Ontario. Thanks for listening, Brad. I also want to tell you that pay to play is doing very well on Amazon I now have 38 reviews and a 4.8 out of 5 rating. Patricia recently posted a review and she says, This book was wonderful. I enjoyed all the twists and turns within the book. The anticipation of what you knew was coming was so worth it at the end. I also like the fact that the book takes place in Philadelphia, which is my hometown. I cannot wait for her next book to come out. I highly recommend this book. Thank you, Patricia. And Stephanie says, a good read. You want surprises? Read the book. I had so many different emotions while reading this book, waiting for number two. Thank you both, Stephanie and Patricia. And for those of you who have not yet gotten your copy of Pay to Play, I want you to know that my agent has finally convinced me to discount the ebook so that we can get more listeners to read it. So if you haven't yet checked that out, please do. And for those of you who have, thank you so much. I appreciate both your support of the podcast, FBI Retired, Case File Review with Jerry Williams, and of my crime novel, Pay to Play. You guys are the best. Now here's the show. Hi, everyone. I want to introduce you to my guest, Jeff Doyle. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Jerry. How are you? I'm doing great. I have gotten referrals from a number of agents, at least two, and I'm thinking it's three, who said, you need to speak to Jeff Doyle. And so I'm excited that you've agreed to tell us all about your big heroin bust 
but before we get into that, can you tell us first when you joined the FBI and why you wanted to be a special agent? Sure, I'd be happy to, and it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Jerry. I joined the FBI in <clears throat> 1979. Uh, that followed a span of eight and a half years as a Navy pilot and uh, two years as a uh, an investment broker. Uh, why I wanted to become an, an FBI agent, uh, you know, it's it's something that uh, that I thought about for I had thought about for a long time uh, as a kid growing up on the south side of Chicago. I had the occasion to have uh, a number of encounters with uh, law enforcement, uh, some positive and some not so positive. Uh, uh, additionally, two of my close friends' uh, father was an FBI agent, and I I guess it was uh, it was from them that I uh, really started uh, started my interest in the Bureau. When I left the Navy uh, in 1977, I applied to the Bureau and found that uh, they weren't hiring for two years. So I uh, I became an investment broker and, and got a call two years later, uh, uh, and, and the rest is history. So was New York your only office? No, when I uh, when I entered on duty uh, after becoming uh, a special agent uh, from Quantico, uh, my first office was Richmond, Virginia. Uh, and Richmond at the time was one of, if not the smallest offices that the bureau had. We had approximately 50 or 55 agents in the entire division, uh, and it was a large division. It <clears throat> went all the way from uh, uh, from. Uh, Eastern Virginia, all the way to uh, uh, Appalachia, and uh, up north to just uh, just outside of Washington D.C. A lot of territory to cover, and uh, it was a great experience for a first office agent uh, because we got to work virtually everything, uh, all the violations that uh, the bureau had to offer. Yeah, I can imagine so. So then, was it from Richmond to New York? It was. Uh, and how did you feel about went- that? I mean, you're from Chicago, so I guess going to New York wasn't as scary as it was for some people. Well, it's, it, it certainly wasn't uh, scary. Uh, it was a little uh, uh, disappointing because I thought I'd be off to uh, Chicago, uh, at, uh, being at a large office and that, uh, that being home. But I, I was very fortunate. I, <clears throat> I wound up on an Italian organized crime squad. Uh, the Genovese family uh, was the, the family, you know, one of the five uh, New York organized crime families uh, that our our squad uh, worked on exclusively. Uh, I did that for four years and uh, had the opportunity to uh, join a new squad uh, that was focusing on on Chinese uh, organized crime and drug trafficking. Uh, I, I interviewed with the uh, the new supervisor and I had. Uh, gained a fair amount of experience uh, working Title III's uh, wiretaps uh, on the organized crime squad, and uh, and it was something that uh, uh, that the new squad didn't have a lot of uh, experience in, and and so it was a good fit, and uh, began working uh, alongside a a number of very very sharp professional uh, agents and uh, New York City Police Department detectives uh, in the Joint Task Force squad. Well, let me ask you just one quick question, because you talk about a new squad, and if you could share with the listeners, you know, how squads are created, you know, when there there appears to be a new threat. 
That's exactly the case. Uh, uh, initially, uh, all Chinese crime matters uh, were handled off the Genovese Crime Family Squad, uh, which uh, didn't. Uh, there was no natural connect- connection there, but it uh, uh, it, uh, it just wound up under the uh, the auspices of that particular squad. Uh, the, the long and the short is that uh, there was a lot going on in Chinatown uh, that uh, the bureau was was not uh, intimately involved in. Uh, a lot of crime that was being handled uh, solely by the New York Police Department. There was a clear need for uh, an enterprise uh, type investigation uh, of of Chinese organized crime, which wasn't uh, uh, available with the uh, shortage of manpower that uh, the squad. C6 had, which was the Genovese squad, and so they decided to, to form a squad exclusively to, to target the, uh, the Chinese crime. And I take it this was a task force where you were you were also pulling in some of the New York uh, Police Department uh, people that were already working this. Uh, that's exactly right, and, and one of the one of the real benefits that. Uh, teaming with the New York Police Department brought was that, you know, they had uh, a fair number of native Chinese speakers, which uh, the Bureau at that time uh, lacked significantly. Uh, And so, uh, in addition to uh, this investigative manpower, uh, having uh, those language abilities was was a real plus. The squad initially began gathering intelligence, trying to develop informants uh, through a uh, a separate squad in a, in a separate office, actually the Chicago office, uh, in the fall of 1987, an informant surfaced who had information uh, about an individual in uh, Chinatown, New York, uh, who was a, a pretty well-known individual who uh, allegedly had uh, a contact for, for uh, Southeast Asian heroin. Case agent in Chicago essentially gave the information to New York, and then it was decided that the uh, uh, the case would be worked jointly uh, by New York and uh, uh, and Chicago, with uh, the Chicago agent handling the uh, the confidential uh, witness and uh, New York, uh, you know, handling the uh, investigation on the individual uh, in New York. That individual was a 72-year-old man by the name of Peter Wu, who was the unofficial mayor of Chinatown. He had been the president of one of the uh, large influential Chinese associations for years. He ran a uh, liquor store during the day, which was a uh, a gambling parlor in the basement uh, in the evening. A very influential uh, guy who had been around Chinatown for a long, long time. Had he ever been arrested? Was he... Known to law enforcement? He was not known to law enforcement from a criminal standpoint. He was certainly known uh, simply because of his reputation in the community. He had uh, pictures hanging on the wall of taken with past mayors and uh, uh, other significant national figures. So he was a he was a he was a pretty well known guy in the community, which which piqued our interest. But uh, you know, we we would have been interested in it uh, no matter who he was, uh, mm-hmm. based on the information that the cooperating witness. Uh, Provided. And what was that? What was it that he was saying Mr. Wu was doing? Well, the, the, the cooperating witness uh, in Chicago actually uh, became a cooperating witness as a result of a, uh, an Italian investigation 
there. He had uh, borrowed some money from the Italian mob in Chicago and uh, through through another Chinese gentleman in Chicago and was having difficulty paying it back. Uh, and his Chinese contact in Chicago, whose name was Joe Wayne, uh, suggested that uh, he knew a way that the cooperating witness could make some money, uh, that Joe Wayne had a friend in New York, Peter Wu, uh, who could get some heroin and uh, that he should get in touch with uh, with Peter Wu. From, from that point on, the agent in, in Chicago, whose name was Dan Belich, worked very, very closely with the cooperator to develop phone numbers and to help us develop the probable cause to go up on wires on Peter Wu's telephones, uh, which was the first step in trying to uh, identify the uh, his associates and, and, and whatever... Uh, group he might have been affiliated with. What happened after that was that uh, the cooperator made contact with uh, Peter Wu, uh, essentially asked if he could purchase some heroin. The deal was was set up. Uh, the cooperator flew to New York, and uh, the deal uh, happened in a in a, uh, a hotel in New York. And undercover, a brand new first office agent, uh, undercover. Uh, flew out to Chicago, a Chinese uh, undercover flew out to Chicago, and paid the money uh, to Joe Wing when the when the deal happened in New York. That that was really the uh, uh, the, the catalyst uh, to move the, the case forward. Now, obviously, uh, in a, in a typical drug case, uh, as they had been done for for decades. Uh, uh, by local law enforcement and often DEA, uh, Peter Wu would have been arrested, the, uh, uh, Joe Wing would have been arrested, and the case would have been over. Uh, we decided that uh, we were going to apply the enterprise theory uh, of investigation that had been used on organized crime to to try to expand the investigation and and uh, take it to its uh, its natural source. Could you explain uh, that a little bit more? The enterprise. Yeah, the the whole theory behind uh, the, the enterprise theory of investigation is to, instead of focusing on single violations, to identify the the other uh, co-conspirators who were involved in in uh, in, in the, the 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 group, the enterprise itself, and ultimately the racketeering, the RICO statute allows uh, those groups to be charged as an enterprise. Uh, even though they may involve a number of different crimes that different people are directly involved in, the long and the short is that we wanted to we wanted to take let this case go as far as we possibly could without uh, having to take it down to expand the uh, the scope of uh, uh, you know of co-conspirators and the and the uh, at the time we were we were brand new in the uh, in the drug field, we really didn't know a whole lot about uh, Chinese uh, drug activity. Our assumption was that uh, the more traditional uh, organized crime groups, uh, the triads and the tongs, were the ones. Uh, the street gangs were were the ones who were uh, responsible for uh, the trafficking. And so that was our our goal to identify which of those organizations was involved. Uh, what we learned was that that was not at all the case. The, the Chinese traffickers uh, were, were much more amorphous. Uh, they came, came together in certain deals and 
and and conspired with a number of different people in different deals, uh, some some common, uh, many not so common. So they were more, much more businesslike, much more uh, conspiracies of opportunity, uh, and and the case which which ran for a, a year and a half proved that uh, we we were able to to do deals and set up deals uh, all across the Pacific Rim uh, from from Hong Kong to uh, Singapore to uh, Los Angeles to uh, Detroit, uh, Calgary, Alberta. Uh, Canada, uh, Vancouver, Toronto, uh, and and in each one of those places, using the intelligence from the Title Threes as well as a cooperating witness, we were able to uh, anticipate the moves of the bad guys and actually take the the dope off the street without arresting anybody uh, and leaving the uh, the, the folks. Uh, who were involved uh, thinking that they were lucky to have escaped. Uh, ultimately, when the case came down, though, uh, they, they did not escape. And, they did not. And uh, more than more than 60 of them were uh, were ultimately uh, apprehended. And how many of that 60 were known gang members that you had already identified, and how many were people that weren't even on your radar? The vast majority of them were not on our radar until they entered the conspiracies. I did want to touch on something that you said about the FBI and drug investigations because, and I don't have the date, you probably do, it wasn't until the mid to late 80s that that became part of our jurisdiction. Before that, the FBI was not actively involved in uh, investigating drug investigations. Could you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, that's exactly correct. It was 1982 that uh, the FBI got concurrent jurisdiction in drug investigations. Uh, prior to that, uh, drug enforcement had uh, exclusive jurisdiction. Uh, however, even even after uh, the bureau got concurrent jurisdiction, there uh, were uh, certain directives that came out that indicated that DEA uh, would, <coughs> excuse me, would be the lead internationally uh, in drug cases, uh, which presented uh, some huge problems. Uh, DEA uh, initially, in our case, was was very cooperative. Uh, they they helped us. Uh, the New York Squad, which was uh, uh, Group 41, uh, run by uh, a guy by the name of Rich Lamagna, uh, uh, who who wound up spending a couple of years actually working for the bureau as a uh, he was seconded to the bureau by DEA. He he uh, was very helpful in in helping us understand uh, uh, Chinese traffickers and. And uh, give us a, a little bit of a, a, a primer in, in that. When, when we took the case overseas, particularly to Hong Kong, however, uh, we, we started to run into uh, obstructionists, to uh, certain folks within the DEA that actually tried to uh, scuttle the case, tried to uh, uh, have our, our main subject uh, searched, uh, uh, coming back into the United States. Uh, uh, just a, a whole host of of issues uh, that, that caused some 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 real friction between the two agencies. Mm. Uh, uh, ultimately, uh, we coordinated with DEA when we were overseas. Uh, we had, took three trips to uh, to Hong Kong, uh, one to Manila, the Philippines, one to Singapore, and, and, and numerous trips to to Canada. In, in each one of those jurisdictions, we 
through the league apps, uh, we coordinated our activity with DEA, but uh, uh, we, we actually worked the investigation with the uh, Hong Kong police. What was the purpose of those those trips? Was was it surveillance? Was it meeting with law enforcement on an international basis? Was it to to interview witnesses? Well, the first the first the first trip. Uh, no, they were all operational trips. The first trip uh, we took the cooperating witness over. And we we learned that uh, that Peter Wu was traveling uh, over to Hong Kong. Uh, we took the opportunity to tell Peter Wu that. Gee, what a coincidence! Uh, our cooperating witness was going to be there at the same time. Our hope and anticipation was that he would introduce us to, and we would be able to identify uh, who his contacts were, working with the, the Hong Kong police. We then uh, took a, um, a second, and actually a second trip to Macau, identified an individual who was uh, very uh, seriously wanted by the uh, Royal Hong Kong Police, a guy by the name of. Uh, Guy Z.Y., Marketplace Y, who was wanted in conjunction with uh, a murder in uh, in Hong Kong. And for our part, we offered to try to lure him back to Hong Kong, uh, have the cooperating witness lure him back. We were unsuccessful uh, getting him back there, but uh, uh, gained some valuable intelligence while we were in, in Macau. Uh, we then traveled to uh, Manila, uh, where we had planned to introduce uh, an undercover, a DEA undercover, to uh, another associate, uh, a very significant heroin trafficker who was uh, uh, affiliated with Peter Wu at a distance. Uh, but that was called off because our DEA undercover was actually kidnapped by uh, some unknown uh, criminals when he uh, uh, took, took a cab from the airport to uh, come to meet us. Wow. Um, uh, he was successful in, in extricating himself from that situation, but we decided uh, 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 he had uh, tested his luck uh, enough for, for that trip. Uh, so we went back to uh, to Hong Kong, met with Wu again, uh, actually identified uh, some, some people that he was meeting with, helped the Royal Hong Kong police uh, um, you know, get a, a fix on, on who his associates were there. And then flew back to the United States. Did not consummate a deal there. But shortly after arriving back to the United States, uh, the cooperating witness got a call from Peter Wu telling him that uh, he had, uh, and he used the code word ginseng on, uh, on the West Coast. Uh, it turned out that uh, what he had on the West Coast was cocaine and not heroin. Uh, it was a rather comical exchange uh, between the CW and CW being cooperating witness because Peter Wu didn't want to use the, the actual terms and the cooperating witness couldn't figure out what he was trying to trying to tell him. <laughs> Long and short was that he had uh, had uh, 50 kilos of, of cocaine uh, in California. Yeah, usually he, when he, you have a code name for something, you kind of establish what that code name is between all parties. But I guess he well, he had his own code name and he was trying to get uh, the cooperator exactly. to figure it out. Yeah, that's funny. Exactly, and that was that was one of the, the you know there were many humorous aspects uh, uh, in the case. Uh, th- this was certainly one. The cooperating witness was successful in 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 uh, getting uh, uh, Wu to travel to Chicago uh, with the cocaine. 
uh, along with a, uh, a an African American gentleman who uh, who was actually the source of the cocaine, uh, uh, a guy who we later identified as Leroy Jackson. The, the way he did that was that he offered to buy uh, uh, two kilos of cocaine in Chicago, and uh, so they came to Chicago, did the deal in Chicago, and the Chicago surveillance squad got on them. Uh, they got then got after the deal, they got on the train with two suitcases and went to Detroit where the Chicago surveillance squad turned it over to the Detroit surveillance squad. Uh, and they took Peter Wu and uh, uh, Leroy Jackson to a hotel uh, where they ultimately uh, arranged to hand the suitcases off to uh, their customers in Detroit. Uh, it was a very slick exchange. They had the suitcases brought down to the loading dock by a, a bellboy. And as soon as they landed on the loading dock, a car pulled up, they went into the trunk of the car, and, and off went the two suitcases. Uh, the Detroit FBI uh, followed these folks, uh, stayed on them for quite some time, and, and ultimately took them down uh, without taking Leroy or, or, or Peter Wu down. Uh, they, they held off on doing the arrests until Peter Wu was back, uh, had left the hotel, and was actually on a bus headed back to New York. I do have a question because at first we were talking about heroin coming from yep. Hong Kong and Singapore, and now we're yep. talking about cocaine. Where did the cocaine and Leroy come from? That was a very good question. It was the same question that we asked, and we uh, I discussed you know whether we should blow it off or it was a it was an opportunity to you know take the case further, and we went for it. So uh, uh, it, it identified a. Uh, some pretty, very, very significant uh, coke dealers in Detroit. Uh, they wound up seizing all the all the coke. Uh, we bought two units uh, and uh, or two two kilos in Chicago. Peter went home and didn't know uh, anything about the arrests that ultimately happened in Detroit or the seizures that happened in Detroit. You know, we we were we were successful in pulling it off. In each one of these cases where where a deal was was set up, we had to be very careful not to. Uh, uh, put ourselves in a position where we were going to be forced to take Peter Wu down because that would have ended the case. So in each one of these cases, we had to uh, arrange for him to be out of the picture, uh, and in one case, to actually force him out of the picture. How did you do that? Took, it was in Canada that Peter Peter was up there with with an associate by the name of David David Kwong, and uh, this was a heroin transaction. Uh, uh, had come from from Hong Kong through uh, Vancouver. They were staying at a hotel. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police uh, and I was there with them. Uh, had had wires in the hotel room. Two individuals took some of the heroin into a car and drove. Tried to drive across the border, and we arranged with uh, uh, folks at the border to to stop and search the car, which they did. And ultimately, you know, found the heroin secreted in the door panels. So it took them a long time to. To figure that out, but they they, uh, they were able to do that and take them down. Uh, the rest of the heroin was still in the hotel room, and so Peter Wu walked into uh, into the lobby of the, uh, uh, the hotel, and uh, the sergeant, whose name ironically was uh, Ken Doyle, was standing there with me. I said, "Look, we've got to get we've got to get Peter out of here." He said, "I'll take care of it." He walked up stood right next to Peter and said to the desk clerk, 
Sergeant Doyle of Royal Canadian Mounted Police, we had heroin dealers in room 22. Uh, I need a key. And Peter Wu looked at him and, and literally walked, shuffled backwards out the side door and headed to the, <laughs> headed to the bus, thinking he was, he was the luckiest guy in the world. But he just escaped. That uh, is funny. Yeah, you, you let him go. <laughs> we, well, we, we had to. I mean, it, yeah. uh, and, and the case continued. And the case uh, you know, continued, and, and ultimately uh, uh, he took us back to uh, back to Hong Kong for, for another trip uh, where we, uh, the cooperating witness, ordered up uh, 22 units, and units a pound and a half of heroin. And uh, uh, the Royal uh, Hong Kong police uh, did an exceptional job. Uh, uh, the meeting place was supposed to be in a, a car park, uh, a parking lot. Uh, they were able to spot the car and, and take it down in the, in the lot before they made the delivery to the hotel. So Peter Wu and, and the cooperating witness were in the hotel, and, and the bad guys just never showed up because the, the cops, the Royal Hong Kong police, were able to take them down before they got there. Mm-hmm. So again, they, uh, you know, we were able to take it off the street, make those arrests, and, and uh, the case went on. And, I, and the funny thing is that if Peter Wu is learning about all this stuff, each time he's thinking, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. People keep getting arrested around me, and I keep being able to escape and, and, and not be caught. He had no idea. That's, that's, that's exactly that's, right. Yeah, ingenious. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. And, it, uh, and, and, and ultimately, uh, when, the, when the big load came in, the 900-pound shipment, uh, uh, we, we had no choice but to to take the uh, the entire case down, and and that that was a the people who were involved in that load uh, were from 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 Thailand, from uh, Burma, from Hong Kong, uh, from the United States, from a whole number of places. Uh, uh, a lot of folks that we had had never heard of before, and not seen before, only surfaced uh, in conjunction with that particular load. At the culmination of the case, we, we took down uh, all of those people and, and sent out uh, a word to the other officers in, in uh, San Francisco and uh, in Hong Kong and in uh, Canada and, and elsewhere to, to take down their respective people at the same time. And, and in total, there were uh, over 60, 60 people taken down, 900 pounds of heroin, $4.5 million in cash and, and uh, the cocaine. Well, we haven't used any superlatives um, as of yet, but at the time, uh, this was considered the largest drug bust in the whole United States. Still is. Still is. Oh, wow. Still is. It was four times the size of the largest uh, French Connection case. Uh, wow. That's pretty big. Everybody knows about the French Connection uh, drug case. This is more than four times that amount. That's correct. Over over a billion dollars worth of uh, of heroin, and it was all almost 100 percent pure heroin in the high 90s uh, in in terms of percentage. Well, let's talk more about how they were bringing this in because that's pretty cool. You sent me a picture, so you know I've I've seen it myself. But why don't you describe it to everybody? How were they able to smuggle in, or what were they using to smuggle this? Amount of heroin into the uh, into the U.S. 
It originated in uh, in northern Thailand. Uh, came down to Bangkok. It was uh, it was packaged in Bangkok. Uh, and when I say packaged, it was actually molded uh, into the shape of a uh, of a of a wheel, a small uh, small wheel. Uh, it was formed in that shape because it uh, was inserted inside uh, rubber tires. Uh, there were uh, about 2,500 rubber tires, uh, and only a number of them actually had the heroin uh, secreted in them. So we had to, when we when we made the seizure, we seized boxes and boxes and boxes, hundreds of boxes of these tires that had been shipped from from uh, Bangkok to Singapore, uh, from Singapore to uh, California, and then across to the to the East Coast. When we seized the tires, they were they were stashed in the house in Queens. There was a, a person who was an operational person who had actually been with the tires from the time they were packaged, who was taking the heroin out of the tires, and they had to use acetone to uh, to dissolve the glue that held the pieces of the tire together, uh, and uh, uh, razor knives to to cut them open. So in the basement of this particular house, they were doing it one at a time. So when we seized all of the heroin, we had the challenge of figuring out which tire, tires had the heroin and which ones didn't. And ultimately, we discovered that uh, the ones with the heroin weighed about uh, a pound more than the others. So that's how we ultimately determined which, which tires had it and which, which didn't. And it was our, our job to, uh, you know, to take the tire, the heroin out of the tires and we, we started to do that and realized that it was just uh, it was going to take us forever and, and ultimately uh, we we left them in the tires and just uh, uh, you know kept them in the evidence uh, vault uh, actually in the tires for those that had not already been taken out. Yeah, this picture that you sent me is so cool because uh, each of the, I guess are, these are members of your, of your team are holding right. these rings. I, I take it that's rings of heroin. That's exactly right. Yeah, each each one is a pound and a half. And how much is and, is uh, in there? How much heroin and how much and what was the value at the time? Well, it's it was all uh, you know, ninety ninety percent plus uh, pure pure China white heroin, and uh, I mean the total uh, the total value of the just under nine hundred pounds was a billion dollars. So uh, I'd have to pull out the calculator to figure out. You know what each uh, each unit was was specifically worth. Uh, that billion dollars is you know the, the uh, what it was uh, the, the street value. Okay. Because uh, yeah, ninety ninety percent heroin can be cut many 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 times. Uh, you know before it actually hit the street. And back in those days, the percentages were were probably thirty percent or less um, at the street. Now the percentages are significantly higher. I understand. Now, I'm sure when you initiated this case, you never thought that Peter Wu was going to lead you to, you know, the biggest bust of, uh, you know, heroin in the United States. How did that happen? I mean, were you as shocked when you found all of this or or had you heard through your uh, the wiretaps and things that you were doing that there was this much coming in? Well, we had no idea it was this much, uh, but there were there were certainly uh, representations made by Peter Wu that we could buy as much as we wanted. 
you know, that, that certainly spoke to the relative size of, of the load. But no, we were, we were shocked, uh, in terms of the, of the reality of, uh, how much was there. And uh, there had been, uh, no seizures anywhere close to that. You know, nobody, nobody had any, uh, real sense, anybody in law enforcement or policymakers of the, you know, the influence of, uh, you know, the Chinese traffickers, the Chinese and the Thai traffickers at the time, this really opened their eyes. Uh, at the time, uh, uh, China White Heroin was probably responsible for about 80% of the heroin on the streets of the, uh, in the United States. That, but nobody uh, knew that this, before this. They certainly didn't have an appreciation for it. Uh, if, if they did know it, it wasn't, wasn't widely disseminated, that's for sure. Okay. That's pretty cool because I know I've done a number of podcasts, at least two others, where we talk about heroin during during the same time period and, you know, the FBI's investigation, but it was all Sicilian, you know, Sicilian organized crime. Right. And and so this is pretty fascinating to, to me. Well, that was one of the big, big misconceptions. Uh, you know, the Sicilians, uh, they they were bringing heroin in, but, but nowhere near the, the volume that the Chinese were. A lot of attention was given to them. I mean, the, the Bureau had, had focused on the Italians and Italian organized crime for, for a long, long time, and that was that was certainly a much more uh, uh, well-understood and, and well-worked uh, area of the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the amount of, uh, of, of heroin and the, the quantities and the scale that the, uh, the Chinese and the, and the Sino-Thais were, were able to produce as evidenced by this uh, was a real eye-opener. Was the violence that was associated with the Italian organized crime, was that also associated with the Asian organized crime? Were they killing each other and warring and was all that happening? Or is that why they were kind of under the radar? Yeah, much, much less so. Two, two reasons. And I, I was asked to testify before Vice President Biden when he was uh, the head of the Judiciary Committee about this. Congress had done a study uh, some years before that said that the triads and the tongs were the ones who were responsible for, for uh, the Chinese uh, heroin importation into the United States. Uh, I, I had to uh, disabuse them of that. Uh, the, the evidence was clear to us, and for the next 10 years it was certainly proven that uh, that uh, the Chinese were uh, that their uh, organizations and their conspiracies were much more amorphous. They were not the, the property of uh, any organi- particular organized crime group, although there were figures, there were organized crime members who would come in and out of different conspiracies, but, but they were not uh, organized and, and uh, uh, as, you know, as, as a family enterprise or a tongue enterprise or a triad enterprise. It was a different animal altogether, which... Which also made it much more difficult to uh, uh, to deal with. You couldn't put it on a chart. You couldn't uh, you couldn't uh, identify who the boss was and and who the soldiers were and who the capos were. And uh, although that's what the uh, the congressional committee did, and I I, I was uh, not a, a welcome uh, witness uh, to <laughs> Senator messed, Biden. You messed up their pretty chart. Well, Senator Biden held up the book and he. he waved it in the air, and he said to me, you mean to tell me this is wrong? I said, yes, Senator, it's wrong. You know, it, it, uh, he had charts on the wall and everything else, and they were, you know, it, it was just make-believe. Uh, there, was no, there was absolutely no evidence of that. And we can see that just from what you've told us here, because 
Mr. Wu was, what, a 72-year-old man just walking Correct. around New York, you know, Correct. and nobody even knew that he was handling all of this uh, heroin. You know, in working these cases, uh, uh, it was it was difficult to explain uh, uh, to uh, to people where where you were going because you didn't know where you were going. It was it was you know, there was no way to uh, identify the family and structure uh, and put people on a chart and, and draw links uh, because those often didn't uh, uh, surface or, or weren't identified until the conspiracy was actually. Uh, uh, interrupted or or, uh, uh, or completed. Uh, you know, I, I became the supervisor of, of that squad. I was the case agent. Uh, I became the supervisor of that squad and supervised it for the next 10 years. And uh, in every heroin case, that every Chinese heroin case that we uh, that we did, uh, showed the same the same sort of, uh, of network, the same amorphous groups, the uh, uh, conspiracies that that uh, you know formed around specific transactions. One of the things I think about when I think about you know drug cases and drug investigations is the greed and the power struggle. You know everybody wants to be on top and they want to be the man, and it just doesn't seem that that was involved in this particular enterprise. Well, it was about money. I mean, there was no question about it, and and uh, you know they uh, uh, they they work together. They they are much more businesslike. Uh, you know, than, than the wise guys tend to be, mm. uh, much more pragmatic than the wise guys tend to be, and, and consequently more, less violent. Although there, there was certainly a, uh, an amount of violence. The, uh, the individual who came over, uh, uh, whose name was B. Vestrichak, he was uh, from Burma. He was responsible for handling the money, uh, which was going to be in excess of $100 million going back to, uh, to the suppliers in Bangkok. He wound up... Uh, uh, dying of mysterious causes. Uh, our cooperating witness on a trip uh, in 2003, a uh, trip to China, was found dead in his hotel room. Mm. Uh, whether that was a connect connected or not, we were never able to determine. Uh, the Chinese authorities were 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 not cooperative at all <clears throat> in helping us identify uh, what had happened or giving the, the consulate any information about that. So there, there certainly was violence. Uh, you know, they were not. Uh, uh, afraid of, of using violence. In some of our cases, we, you know, we arrested people with uh, body armor and uh, you know machine guns and, and things of that nature. But uh, kind of a, a, a uh, one of the comical, uh, after the fact, comical points of the of the, uh, the investigation was the night that we took it down when we finally were executing three search warrants. We had followed a, a truck to a, a, a multifamily structure in uh, Queens, New York, and Dan Balich and, and a, uh, a number of folks from my squad were out there at, uh, at that location, and uh, there were Colombians on the third floor <coughs> of the building. The Chinese owned the building, but they were on the first floor, and uh, the Colombians on the third floor saw the police, and they uh, thought they were coming for them and threw out uh, a kilo of cocaine and a machine gun. <laughs> and uh, and and so, uh, in addition to taking the uh, uh, the Chinese uh, into custody, uh, they uh, gathered up. Uh, I think it was eight eight uh, Colombians. And when I got back to the office, I I walked in and here eight Hispanic guys are sitting on the wall. And I said, "Who the hell are these guys?" <laughs> uh, 
had no idea. But uh, that's great. Now all of this information you packed into a, a book. You wrote a book about this case. That's and right. I say packed because I saw that it had like uh, almost 500 pages. So the book is going to provide a lot more detail uh, than we've been able to, you know, to, to to talk about here. Yeah, it's it was a it was a, a labor of love, uh, 520 pages to be uh, to be exact. The reason I wrote the book was that in uh, right after the case came down in uh, 1989, a professional writer by the name of Dave Kleinman, who had been an investigative reporter and had done a fair amount of true crime writing, uh, asked permission of the bureau to uh, to interview us, and they gave permission, and and uh, so he he spent the next two years uh, going to all the trials. Uh, going, he went to Hong Kong and went to to uh, Canada. Interviewed each of us uh, as, as professional writers do. We wrote the first third of the book and tried to uh, pre-sell it. Uh, unfortunately, his agent wasn't able to sell the book. So when I retired in 1999, I thought to myself, "Well, it's a great story, and uh, I want to get it down." So that's that's what I did. I spent the next uh, nine months uh, writing the first draft, and uh, total of about uh, two and a half years uh, between the time I started and the time it was published. And what's the name of the book? The name of the book is White Mare, which was the name of the case. White Mare, W-H-I-T-E-M-A-R-E. And the, the name comes from uh, the street The street uh, term for heroin back years ago was horse. And uh, this is China White. And uh, we, we couldn't call it White Horse because that's a, a famous brand. And so White Mare uh, became the name. I will put a link to that book. I, I found it on Amazon, and uh, so I'll put a link to that book on the show notes for actually, this episode. The, it's, it's available. It's, it's still available through the publisher. It's a print-on-demand publisher, Ex Libris, which is a Random House uh, brand. It's X-L-I-B-R-I-S. All right. I'll put a link to both of those on the this episode's show notes, so if anybody wants to check out the book, they can they can do that, too, because I'm sure... There are a lot more stories that were involved with that case. This case that uh, you tell in the book, uh, I, I think it's fascinating. Yeah, it, it, it was a great case, and, and just uh, I'll tell you the the work and the cooperation of foreign law enforcement and and uh, the domestic uh, the folks from the bureau and, and from the police department, and it, it was just uh, exceptional. Uh, the uh, Royal Hong Kong Police, the uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police. You know there were bumps along the way, uh, but uh, but it wound up being just a, a wonderful, wonderful working relationship, and, and developed some, some really strong friendships. Uh, some of which uh, continue today, which which is 25, 27 years later. Well, before we wrap up, because I do want to find out what you're doing now, I I and I don't know if you can answer this question, but sure. What are your thoughts about? What's going on with heroin today? I mean, heroin now is what cocaine used to be, you know, a, a recreational uh, drug that even in my town, I live in a, in a you know, a, a middle class suburban uh, outside of Philadelphia town in South Jersey. And heroin is here in yeah. our in, in our high school. And it's just yeah, yeah, unbelievable yeah. to me. How, what what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's a, it's a tragedy. And it's, uh, uh, you're right, it's a uh, it's it's rampant. It's rampant all over the United States. It's uh, epidemic in some areas. Uh, it's uh, largely, I, I'm 
believe, a result of the uh, the overprescription and overavailability of opioids, uh, you know, pain medicine that uh, you know for for the last decade have been peddled like uh, like candy, uh, and uh, and our hands a lot cheaper, and, and people get hooked on uh, on the pills and and they turn to heroin, and, and there are you know just just scores of, of very very sad situations that result deaths and and uh, you know families that are never the same. It's just it's it's tragic. It's tragic. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, you know, I have a lot of um, retired agents who also listen to the podcast, and one of the things I really like to have on, and I've had a request for this, is to somebody, you know, who worked um, healthcare, healthcare fraud, who can talk to us about a case where we had, you know, a physician over-prescribing. Um, I would love to, to, to talk about that and, and, and to talk about its relationship to um, this increase in heroin use. It would be fascinating. So if there's an agent out there, retired agent out there, who has had one of those type of cases, Please call me. Love to uh, to talk to them about it. All right. So, Jeff, what are you doing now? So, when did you retire? I retired in 1999. Uh, as I said, uh, after this case, I became the supervisor of the squad, and, and uh, we were, uh, if not the most successful uh, squad in the bureau. I I would uh, uh, put it up against any other. We were very successful, and, and uh, just a great, great, very unique group of people. Uh, that I had the pleasure of working with. Uh, after retirement, I did a number of things, uh, but uh, settled uh, in about 2003 uh, into what I'm doing now, and that is uh, I run an investigative and an anti-money laundering consulting firm. Uh, our, our main uh, function is uh, in the anti-money laundering arena. We provide uh, 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 staffing for for projects for large financial institutions and uh, and employ uh, many 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 retired agents uh, retired bureau agents IRS uh, CI agents uh, formal postal inspectors a uh, couple of DEA agents uh, uh, some former customs folks uh, retired uh, police department uh, people as well as uh, retired bankers and and uh, folks with the compliance experience. What's the name of the firm? Uh, Doyle Carden Group, D-O-Y-L-E-C-A-R-D-E-N Group. Uh, Bill Carden, my partner, uh, is a retired agent out of uh, out of New York uh, who worked uh, worked a bunch of things, but uh, did the first big uh, uh, organized crime uh, case at JFK Airport uh, and took down. Uh, uh, some very significant uh, crime, organized crime figures there. All right, tell tell him I'm calling him next. <laughs> I, I will. All right, so I'll I'll actually put a link if you don't mind. I'll put a link to uh, the uh, the company too. So if there's anybody who's listening to this that uh, needs to uh, have somebody look at potential money laundering, then uh, they can contact you. That'd be great. Well, also, it's you know we've been uh, uh, we've been a, a great uh, second career for uh, for a lot of retired agents. Uh, you know, we we deal with them as independent contractors on a non-exclusive basis, and you know, put them to work. Uh, and we've been doing it for 13 years, and and uh, I've had a, a number of folks who've worked up for us on and off for an entire time. 
I'd like to give you the opportunity to kind of wrap up uh, your career, your thoughts about the FBI. And I've done a lot of things in my life. Uh, uh, each one has been a different chapter, you know, the military, uh, financial industry, my, my current uh, uh, occupation. Uh, but but the, the, the most uh, remarkable and the most memorable, uh, certainly, uh, were my 20 years in the FBI. Greatest people in the world to work with, uh, uh, doing very, very important things for, for the country, uh, very, very often not appreciated. Uh, and, uh, you know, I hear all the time that it's not the same now as it, as it used to be. Uh, I don't believe that. I'm, I'm sure it's just as, as great today as it was when I retired and, and just as great then as it was 20 years before that. So it's a wonderful organization. And anybody who's looking to get into the Bureau, I wish them all the, all the luck in the world. And that's the end of the interview. As always, back at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find lots of photos of Jeff, newspaper articles about that biggest heroin bust in the history of the U.S., photos of the rings of heroin and the little wheelbarrow tires they were packed in. You'll have direct links to his book, White Mare, that will provide lots more details about this case. If you enjoyed the show, I encourage you to share it with all your friends and family, and I make it easy for you. At the bottom of the episode show notes, I have all the social media share buttons. I forgot to say how much I missed you last week. I did not have a Thanksgiving episode, and uh, I really missed talking to you guys, but uh, it was nice to have a little bit of a break. As uh, you know, I make absolutely no income from the podcast. I'm not complaining. This is uh, something that I love to do. I am enjoying myself so much. But this is, of course, my 45th episode. And it was good to have a break. I plan to keep doing it as long as you guys keep listening. But if you are a regular listener and you want to say thank you for all of the hard work that I do to bring you interesting and exciting episodes each week, except for last week, you can do that by going to Amazon and purchasing pay to play. You don't even have to do the trade paperback. Just picking up the ebook and showing me a little bit of love is all I ask. Right now, it's discounted to $2.99 for the ebook. What a good value you are getting. My crime fiction recommendation for this week is Surprise! Pay to Play by Jerry Williams, a story of corruption, temptation, and redemption. Oh, and don't forget about that free 2017 FBI G-Man collectible calendar that I am offering to FBI retired case file review newsletter subscribers. You can check that out on my website. It features vintage toys and games and guns and books from the 1930s and 1940s collected by two retired agents from the Philadelphia office. Instead of getting one of those free, tired old calendars from uh, the real estate agent or the used car dealership down the street, how about an FBI G-Man 2017 calendar? 
This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening and hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.